and um, bottom line is that a huge gap exists between asset pricing theory and the asset pricing evidence and the gap is so deep and wide you can fit the, um, the Pacific Ocean in between. So how do we explain anomalies is arguably the biggest scientific question in finance uh, in our lifetime, in my opinion. So that's why I've been devoting my academic career trying to fill the ocean one acre at a time. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk with Lou Zhang, the John W. Garbuth Chair, Professor of Finance at Fisher College of Business at The Ohio State University. Lou's research on the drivers of stock returns, including investment and profitability, may be some of the largest contributions in empirical finance since the Fama French refactor model in the early 1990s. As you'll see, Lou is a prolific researcher and authority on other disciplines like philosophy that help him think deeply and differently. He's very passionate about his work and findings, the future of economic investment research, and what we still have left to discover. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with The Ohio State University's Lou Zhang. Hi, Lou. Thank you very much for joining us today. All right. Thank you for having me. Jack and I are excited about this conversation. We're going to talk about investing factors, your Q-factor model, how it improves on the previous work in explaining stock returns, and some of the other sort of groundbreaking research that you're working on. But I think just to start... Um, for our listeners that may not know who you are, maybe could you give just a little bit of background on you, your interests, and sort of where you got to where you are today? All right. Um, nothing unusual. So I was out of school from Wharton in 2002 with a PhD in finance. And uh, afterwards, I went to Rochester for my first academic job. And after four years, uh, Michigan called and offered me tenure. And then I went to Ann Arbor, and after four years, Ohio State called and offered me a chair. I've been living in Columbus uh, ever since 2010. I guess a little bit background that may be a bit unusual from many of my colleagues in academia is that um, Wharton has this very unique feature. You have macro finance group and um, and micro finance group all in the same, both in the same department. So I, I'm, um, um, in, I was influenced substantially by theorists like Andy Abel and Joao Gomes, Amir Yerong. At the same time, I was influenced by uh, um, world-class empirical researchers like uh, Rob Stambo and Craig McKinley. So, and uh, uh, my, the, the, the big picture of my work has always been trying to combine theory with uh, empirical work. And I think that might have some, that idea of combining those two sort of theories, if you will, might have play a part in sort of you challenging the conventional thought when it comes to major asset class pricing models. And, um, you know, that has been something you've done throughout your career and your research. And uh, yeah, so I don't know if, if that if that was the formative experience of you, you know, tending to question this conventional wisdom um, sort of those early days in your academic career. Yeah, so I I think uh, I think uh, uh, well, 
the bottom line is that uh, a lot of our conventional wisdom simply is not working, right? So asset pricing is in a, a Kuhnian crisis. Uh, Kuhnian is in Thomas Kuhn. So he talked about, he was a big um, philosopher of science. He talks about the most of the time scientists work on normal activities. We extend the existing theoretical uh, framework, but as time goes on, we would accumulate a lot of anomalies, right? That's exactly what we are having in asset pricing. Theoretically, we have the CAPM and the extension and the different extensions, what we call the consumption CAPM as the organizing framework, but empirically, the model has failed, right? Many, many times over, over several decades now, ever since uh, Bo and Brown, 1968. So uh, that's why we have the, you know, enormous anomalous literature in the data. And the um, bottom line is that a huge gap exists between asset pricing theory and the asset pricing evidence. And the gap is so deep and wide, you can fit the, um, the Pacific Ocean in between. So how to explain anomalies is arguably the biggest scientific question in finance uh, in our lifetime, in my opinion. So that's why I've been devoting my academic career trying to fill the ocean one acre at a time. We're going to work through um, a, a lot of the major asset pricing models today. But before we do, I thought it might be good just to set the framework in terms of what an asset pricing model is for our user, for our, our viewers who are not uh, familiar with academic research. I wonder if you just talk about what is an asset pricing model and sort of what is their purpose? Yeah. So um, like any scientific field, uh, the, the purpose of scientific theory is usually explanation and prediction. Right. In our field of asset pricing, the goal of our asset pricing theories is to explain the empirical patterns of average stock returns, both at the aggregate level and in the cross-sectional level. So let's just focus on factor investing, which is about cross-sectional asset pricing. So intuitively, explanation means making anomalies unsurprising, make anomalies less anomalous. Right? And uh, a measure of the success of our explanation would be um, uh, our in-sample alpha, um, uh, would be average abnormal returns. If we think average realized returns as, real, as expect returns plus uh, abnormal returns. So how good the model explains the effect would be how small the in-sample alpha is. Um, um, so on the other on the other dimension, there's a there's a prediction. Uh, now, ideally, we would like to use our scientific theories to forecast future returns, but that's so far. But so far, that goal has proven quite elusive. Uh, the out of sample R square in most of our models is just very very uh, small, even at aggregate level. Uh, but uh, but in a sense, it's probably not surprising because I've been recently digging into philosophy of science. Uh, that's um, um, a very influential school of thought uh, by Roy Baska uh, called Critical Realism. He talks about uh, we are living in open systems, right? We're not living in, you know, we're, we're, so as a pricing, we're looking at capital markets that are completely open. Uh, we're not doing astronomy that, right, you can calculate precisely when the next time the Halley's Comet will fly by Earth every 75 years, you can figure everything out mathematically. But that's not the case 
in economics and in asset pricing uh, in particular, and uh, there are different causal um, capacities, causal mechanisms, all at work at the same time. Sometimes one gets triggered, sometimes not. So, and that all these things make prediction exceedingly difficult. But, uh, but, uh, but we're looking at that question as well. To, to get into the individual pricing models, I remember back in the uh, late 90s when I was in college, I think the only asset pricing model they taught was the capital asset pricing model, CAPM. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering maybe if you could just talk about CAPM and sort of what it is and maybe what the current view of academics on CAPM is. Well, we're still teaching the CAPM. Uh, the CAPM is still the, our organizing uh, framework in, um, in, um, in our textbooks for, for MBA programs and master's programs as well. I'm using Bodica and Marcus for 20 years now, and uh, still the whole book is organized. It's organized around the CAPM. So the basic idea is that um, um, so everybody is doing mean variance optimization problem, uh, as in uh, Harry Markowitz's uh, 1952 uh, paper, and uh, we maximize the expected return of our portfolio at the same time uh, minimizing our risk. Right. So, and then a sharp litener Mawson came along in the mid 60s. They argue that. Look, if everybody behaves like a mean variance investor, so at the end of the day, in particular, if you assume all investors have homogeneous beliefs and expectations, and then everybody will hold identical optimal risky portfolio, right? And that will be our optimal demand of risky assets. And then you look at what's the optimal supply, that's the market portfolio, right? At the end of the day, supply equals demand. The market portfolio ought to be the mean variance efficient portfolio. So that's the central uh, prediction of the CAPM, and in the sense that the individual uh, security uh, is risky only to the extent that that individual return contributes to the overall portfolio variance or market variance, and that's market beta, right? So, and you earn higher expected return only because you have higher uh, market beta. Um, so, and the, in the PhD level textbooks, and we have something called the consumption CAPM, the mathematics can be mind-blowing. All the, all the textbooks on the market, for example, they assume even stronger, they make even stronger assumption, you know, in addition, above and beyond the, the assumption that all investors have homogeneous beliefs and expectations. So we typically assume the representative, the existence of representative a consumer. Uh, there are a lot, lot of technical uh, conditions, but at the end of the day, it's effectively, it amounts to assuming everybody's identical, <laughs> both in terms of preferences and, and, and the wealth. Okay, so that's an extremely uh, strong assumption. And, uh, and uh, empirically, the CAPM as well as consumption CAPM uh, perform quite poorly in the data, right? So let me pay homage to Pharma French, and um, um, they have been extremely influential um, over the years. Uh, I have been enjoying inspiration from them uh, ever since I was a PhD student. Uh, when, I on, when I was on the Rochester faculty, I, was, I went through all their papers very carefully, starting from 1992 paper, Journal of Finance. They wrote that too easily measure the variables, size and book to market combined to capture the cross-sectional variation of average stock returns, then then they they went on and say market beta doesn't seem to explain anything even when it's used alone. All right, so that's the CAPM is dead paper, 
and then 1993 paper, they put the SMB and the HML in the in the setup and uh, and uh, and started the 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 the, the area of multi-factor model. So bottom line is that CAPM performs fairly poorly in the data, and consumption CAPM performs even worse. I know uh, my colleagues and uh, in the profession tend to disagree with me on that, but if you look at the evidence, the bigger picture, there are sporadic reports of success, which I acknowledge, but overall, if you look at the evidence, I mean, oftentimes we have to explain as a theorist, I oftentimes feel pressure to explain why the CAPM actually performs better, better than the consumption CAPM. So that's where we are. That's why I say, um, so as a pricing, we are in a Kuhnian crisis. The fact that our theories and our empirics are so detached, something has to give, right? And in my opinion, many things have to give. And I have my own research program in which I believe provides a, a reasonably good answers. And then, but on the other hand, uh, it requires me to do quite a bit of uh, creative destruction of prior literature, but I guess that comes with the job. You mentioned the next major asset pricing model, which is uh, the Fama French three-factor model, which I think you said came out, I think it was 93, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. What, how, how well, I mean, you, you sort of explained what the factors were in there already, but how well is that sort of held up, that, that model? So, yeah, so, um, so the, 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 the 1993 paper, the former French 1993 paper, in my opinion, is the most important finance paper in the past 30 years. Um, I've, I have enormous, enormous amount of respect and admiration uh, for them um, and affection as well, right? So, and uh, quite a bit of uh, nostalgia. So, uh, in, in, in effect, I grew up with that. I grew up reading intellectually, reading the three-factor model. I was describing how I was reading their work when I was on the Rochester faculty. I stopped at 1993, but I actually read them anymore, right? So 95A, 95B, Journal of Business, uh, Journal of Finance, 96 paper, Journal of Finance as well, and 1998, uh, the International Value Premium paper. Uh, by 1998, they have pretty much uh, cleaned up everybody's clock. So they went down and do empirical corporate finance. <laughs> so we have a lot to catch up. So that said, with the, uh, that huge amount of admiration, I have to do something different, right? So because, uh, because the famous 96 Journal of Finance paper, right? If you look at that paper, if you compare that empirical paper with the standard uh, asset pricing theoretical textbook, like Daryl Duffy's 96, Dynamic Asset Pricing Theory, right? It's, completely incompatible, right? I mean, Daryl was writing about, uh, right, the theoretical edifice has been constructed already, whatever is left is some mopping up operations. That's what Daryl wrote in the introduction. At the same time, empirically, we have all kinds of uh, chaos going on, all kinds of anomalies, right? So, 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 uh, so I see it, I see uh, it is my, um, in a sense, my calling in the in the academic uh, journey to bring theory and uh, evidence together. Uh, so, in my opinion, the three-factor model is only a temporary fix after giving them enormous amount of credit. So, and I, I now need to criticize the substance. Um, 
right? So purely on scientific grounds. The three-factor model is a temporary fix. So Karl Popper would call the three-factor model immunizing stratagem, right? So this Karl Popper is a, um, was a philosopher of, philosopher of science. So our, you know, more informally, we just call it ad hoc adjustments. Immunizing means that you, you put the anomalies, the size and the value premiums at the time, right? We didn't understand. You put that in your model, therefore protecting your model from being rejected. But in a sense, it's an ad hoc adjustment. It's an immunizing strategy, right? You are not doing anything progressive. In a sense, uh, you are, you, you, to quote Imri Lakatosh, another philosopher of science, that the Pharma French Research Program has been degenerate since 1996, in my opinion, right? So the, 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 um, uh, the Lakatoshian methodology of research program says that the research program is progressive versus degenerate, what's the criterion? So these are all formal philosophical terminologies. These are not my terminology. So a progressive means that the uh, theoretical progressive means that you have your theoretical theory structure has more predictions, right? A new, new, new contents, contents. Uh, that's, in my opinion, the consumption cap and literature is theoretically progressive. Uh, but on the other hand, so you have to hit the higher hurdle, which is empirical, empirically progressive. That means your new predictions must be somewhat confirmed, at least corroborated, not confirmed. The confirmed is a, actually a higher hurdle, right? At least not falsified, right? In the language of Popper and the Lakatosh. So, in, in that sense, the, 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 the 96 paper is somewhat of a empirical uh, progression because they do show that um, the SMB and HML, they combine to explain a lot of uh, prior anomalies like dividend yield, earnings to price ratio, and uh, deep on failures over, over, over reaction anomaly, and uh, the leverage, market leverage to some extent, right? But at the end of the day, other from that, so I should give them credit in the sense that uh, the 96 paper achieves what Philip Kitcher would call unification account of explanation. Kitcher is a prominent philosopher of science on the Columbia faculty. So his idea of scientific explanation is to collapse a set of anomalies that we don't understand into a few uh, that uh, at least we've seen before, right? So that's in a sense, that's what the, the 96 paper has done. But on the other hand, uh, would if I um, raise the hurdle using Lakatoshian methodology of scientific research programs. So after 1996, the program is not progressive. That means it's degenerate. In, in particular, I can argue that uh, it's not a totally a tautology, but not that different either, right? You regress left shoe on right shoe, you get 100% R square and the alphas are small. So um, in a sense, their, their table one in their 1996 paper, they were explaining size and book to market portfolio returns with size and book market factors. So, so in that sense, it's, uh, it's not exactly tautological uh, because later on they do use many more testing uh, portfolios. So achieve certain unification account of, um, you know, so making some progress in that, in that sense.
So you, you actually address some of these things by creating your own model, the, uh, the Q factor model. And, you know, many, many of the viewers of our podcast will be familiar with a lot of the, the factors you've mentioned before, you know, value, the standard factors, value, momentum, quality, slash profitability, low volatility. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk about in the context of how your model differs from that, if you could sort of talk about what your Q factor model is. Yeah, so the Q-Factor model, we are using four factors, and you can see we are heavily influenced by Pharma French themselves. So we are using, we're taking the factor form from the three-factor model, right? We're using the market factor, which serves as an anchor of uh, average returns in the cross-section, and we are using size, investment, and the return on equity factors, especially investment and ROE factors, the return on equity factors, to explain the cross-sectional uh, differences in average returns. So in our setup, the investment factor is a replacement for the value factor. Um, uh, an important difference between the three-factor model and our Q-factor model is that we are building on economic theory. Um, uh, so, so the economic theory is the investment theory uh, or Tobin's Q theory that says that uh, uh, marginal Q equals marginal cost of investment, right? Which marginal cost of investment is an increasing function of investment. That means you invest more, you have to pay more in terms of costs, right? And marginal Q is uh, uh, under some conditions, it's just the valuation ratio. So, so that's why in our, in our model, um, we never use the value factor because we view the investment factor as, as, a, as a replacement for the value factor. And ROE factor actually um, um, subsumes the momentum factor. So it goes back to um, the post earnings announcement shift, sometimes also called the earnings momentum. It turns out that our ROE factor uh, subsumes the earnings momentum uh, as well. So it's uh, um, so one thing. I've, you know, I'm looking back. I'm very grateful for my Wharton education because I get to absorb different um, scientific literatures in economics, right? If you talk to a macroeconomist, you ask them, hey, what's the rental price of capital, right? So oftentimes, what's the interest rate? Oftentimes, the first response that, that would come to, into their brains is they would say, marginal product of capital. <laughs> so in accounting or empirical finance, we, 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 we say uh, profitability, right? So it's, it's the way different, you see different literatures and people view the world differently, but at the end of the day, we're staring at the same mind independent reality, right? So it's important to do some interdisciplinary uh, research. Uh, philosophers call retrodiction. It's kind of fun. Right, I think you mentioned the low volatility factor, yeah? Yes. So low, low volatility factor empirically is a combination of our investment and ROE factors. So empirically, I, I intuitively, I think, my sense is that uh, uh, there are plenty abundant of uh, small growth firms in the um, you know, 1990s. Uh, they invest like crazy. At the same time, their uh, ROE levels were pretty low. And at the same time, they're highly volatile. I guess uh, those are the ones that are delivering pretty uh, low returns. So, but empirically, in our replicate, replicating anomalies paper, we have some uh, issues with the reliability of the low uh, low risk factor. But at the end of the day, if you even if you take the low risk factor as given and the factor regressions, uh, our investment ROE factors combine to subsume the low volatility factor. 
That makes sense. Just one quick general question. This is probably a very basic question, but before I hand it back to Justin, when we're creating asset pricing models, all else being equal, do you want to use as few factors as possible? So in other words, if they, if they measure out the same way, if I have two factors versus four, is that a better asset pricing model? Is that the goal to get it down to as many factors as you can, or is that totally wrong? So the parsimony is quite important in, 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 in scientific research. Ideally, we want to use... Um, Ideally, in my work, I always simplify, simplify, and simplify. After I'm done, I'm simplify, simplify, simplify a bit more. So we want to use the simple, simplest structure to gain as much explanatory mileage as we can. So why? I mean, it's actually a philosophical issue. Why do I prefer simplicity? Because simple model I can extend later, Right? I can easily extend later. If I start with the complicated uh, model, it's pretty clumsy. Chances are I don't understand what are the key causal mechanisms of the phenomena I'm trying to capture. And Fama French came out with their five-factor, and now they have a six-factor model. But I think that was a few years after the Q-factor was developed and published. Um, can you just sort of explain you know, what the Fama French five-factor and six-factor models are and then how the Q-factor actually varies from that? Yeah, so, um, so, um, um, okay, so this is kind of a sore point for me and uh, I will not shy in dealing with it. <laughs> so, um, so I've spent the past decade climbing the empirical mountain with the help of uh, my colleague Koweho and uh, and uh, Chen Xue at the University of Cincinnati so we are so thanks to them now we are finally able to hold the our side of the um, academic debate uh, against pharma French so we are in the Q factor model we noted that we are using market size investment and profitability factors there are five factor model in a sense is quite similar you really have to stare uh, in the details very carefully uh, to figure out exactly what are the differences between our factor models right they use SMB sorry they use their own version of profitability called the RMW and their own version of investment factor called CMA. And CMA is built on the same investment variable we are using. Of, of course, we are building on a prior work as well. Um, Cooper, Gulen, Show paper, a very nice paper. Big shout out to them. Um, and that the RMW is their... It, they use operating um, profitability. We are using ROE, right? So, so empirically, ROE is more powerful because we are using up-to-date earnings data. So, right. So, but the bottom line is that let me. So, despite the similar form, right? Let me highlight what's the real difference between the Q-factor model and the. Uh, three-factor model, five-factor model, or six-factor model, in my opinion. It's actually a struggle. It's struggle about where asset pricing should be going next. Um, it's very serious, serious academic debate, right? So uh, I, have, I have a quote, a paragraph from the six-factor paper, so 2018 at the GFE. Page 237, so they wrote that uh, we include the momentum factors somewhat reluctantly now to satisfy insistent popular demand. 
We worry, however, that opening the game to factors that seem empirically robust but lack theoretical motivation has a destructive downside. The end of discipline that produces parsimonious models and the beginning of a dark age of data judging that produces a long list of factors with the little hope of sifting through them in a statistical, re, statistically reliable way. I applaud the authors for being so upfront and straightforward in acknowledging uh, their concern. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, standing from the other side of the debate, I would be saying, mm, what do you mean the beginning of a dark age of data judging? What do you mean the beginning? In my opinion, it's the end of the dark age that they started in 1993 by putting the three-factor model together. It is the Q-factor paper that ended the dark age of data judging, right? So this, in a sense, so um, I hope Whatever the three-factor way of thinking is the empiricism, right? The pure empiricism way of thinking. So I give them, a, you know, it's just uh, from one scientist to another. So I, th I give the three-factor model plenty of credit and, uh, right, I call them the most, uh, call that paper the most important finance paper in the past 30 years because at the time, Right, so cap and fields, uh, we have to do something, and then they put, they put the three-factor model together is admirable, but the field has progressed now. The Q-factor paper is quite different now, right? So when you think about it, it's a the three-factor model is a product of pure empiricism. It's their implicit philosophy of science descended from logical positivism, right? So the Milton Friedman 1953 paper, right? The calling card of positivism, the hallmark of positivism and the softened version called the empiricism is flat ontology. It means you deny the existence of causal powers, causal structures, causal mechanisms behind the factors. Causation for you is basically David Hume's constant conjunction of one bullet ball hitting another. There's nothing in there, right? There's nothing deeper, right? In practice, that amount empiricism amounts to a dismissive attitude towards economic theory, right? So the Q-factor model is a completely different product. We borrow the form from the three-factor model, but the, but the creative process is completely different. I started with theory. I was pretty well trained in school, at Wharton, and then I went to Rochester, I started to systematically study the empirical evidence, the gigantic empirical literature, and then I did a bit of uh, what philosophers call abduction, or inference to the best explanation. So I started to think, and how exactly would the theories ought to be that we see the empirical evidence? What kind of causal reality, fundamental structure in the reality of capital markets that we could see all these anomalies, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a, may I say, it's a creative, imaginative process, jumping from theory to evidence. Once I settled on the factor specification, I went on to test the model, right? I arrived at the factor specifications. Uh, first draft is my anomalies paper dated 2004 and took me 11 years to finally and now the factor model because I was climbing the steep curve of empirical work. Again, learning 
all the while learning tremendous amount um, um, uh, from Pharma French, world of respect for them. So, but they, at the end of the day, so that's the key difference. One is old fashioned empiricism. In philosophy of science, logical positivism is a dead philosophy of science. The newer version talks about the newer, the critical realism. We're talking about scientific realism, which means you take theory much more seriously. We talk about causation much more uh, seriously. And, uh, and that's going to be the next mountain I'm climbing. Now. I'm trying to bring uh, causation more deeply into the surprising literature because the Q factor model, in a sense, is a product of the, of the inference to the best uh, explanation. It uh, reflects the new philosophy of science. So to build off of that, how does this augmented Q factor model, which includes an expected growth factor, and the research and the testing you're doing there, how, how does that play into this new research philosophy and your philosophy? Um, and how does that, how does the expected growth build off the original Q factor method? Yeah. So, so the expected growth factor is our response to the rising intangible economy. So the economy is becoming more and more intangible uh, intensive. So uh, as the Q factor model was originally um, uh, motivated, uh, if not derived from a, from a tangible investment model, right? So owning property, plant, equipment, tangible investment. So as once you admit the intangible investment, the expected growth uh, becomes uh, more important, in particular if a company uh, does a lot of, like take Pfizer for example, does a lot of uh, R&D, right? But the R&D is expensed away from current period earnings. If you look at our ROE factor, it will be dead in the water. It goes the wrong way. Whereas, you know, R&D investment is going to induce future uh, growth potential, maybe at risk, very likely at risk, right? But uh, uh, but uh, but oftentimes that risk is compensated with higher uh, risk premium. So our expected growth factor is in a sense a remedy uh, towards the deficiency, the shortcoming, and it's it's an extension of the of the of the Q factor model. Um, so the so bottom line about the causal structure that we have in mind for the cross-sectional asset pricing uh, would be you have intangible, you have tangible investment factor that's a replacement for the value factor. Uh, you have ROE factor that captures a little bit of the, uh, the quality dimension and you have the more powerful expected growth factor that rides on the, uh, the intangible uh, investment. So, and that's how we see the, the, uh, how, how, how cross-sectional asset pricing is working. That makes sense. Before I'll hand it to Jack um, in a minute, but I want to ask you, this is a question we like to ask um, a lot of our guests that are sort of factor experts, but when looking at factors, you know, there's this debate as to why they generate the excess returns that they do, whether it's because they're riskier or there's some sort of mispricing or behavioral, maybe under or overreaction from investors that drives, or maybe a combination of both that drives the excess returns over time. So. Where, where do you fall in this debate when you think of the, um, uh, you know, the, the returns that factors provide? Is it more risk-based or is it more behavioral? So that's a very deep question. Um, that's a very deep question. I have 
I have thought about this question for a long, 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 long time. So uh, let's see if I can finish my answer before our time limit. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a vehement defender of efficient markets. So I, I disagree with farmer French on factor models, but I'm squarely on farmer's camp on efficient markets. Um, um, a lot of it is probably based because of my theoretical background. I grew up, I was trained and I grew up in the macro finance group at the Wharton. So I'm very familiar with the history of rational expectations economics. So in, a, in, a, in many ways, I'm a staunch defender of rational expectations. So, and my answer would be, right, really for, for all the major factors. Now we're not there yet, totally. And uh, right, so it's easy, relatively speaking, it's easier to come up with uh, rational explanations for the value premium. And we're still working on uh, the momentum premium. So um, I mentioned a bit earlier, I was hinting at, so intangible investment that could be related to expected growth because empirically the between ROE factor and our expected growth factor and we subsume momentum uh, UMD factor premium uh, virtually completely. So evidence wise we are being pointed at that direction and in terms of theoretical work and we're still working on it. So, and you mentioned that the risk versus mispricing dichotomy, right? So the debate is between risk and behavioral finance. And I would like to challenge that as well. And that's actually a fairly, fairly deep point. And I should say it's, I've been saying in my recent writings, I need to do much more in my future writings. It's very philosophical as well. So. The right dichotomy should be expected return versus abnormal return, right? If you look at the uh, Farmers 1970 Journal Finance paper, that's exactly his definition. So how cool is that, right? A paper written in 1970, um, um, 1970, and uh, 50 years later, and you have someone like me who's been debating like crazy against the factor models, but I'm ending up defending his original definition of EMH, right? So, but I'm gonna have a major revision as well. So expect return, right? Oftentimes we look at what kind of risks, right? Are behind the expect returns. So I, I challenge that notion. I challenge that notion. So, and the, and the, <laughs> so, uh, it's going to take much longer uh, academically so in, in that scientific debate. So in enterprising, that's a typical notion, presupposition that people say, people argue that asset pricing is all about the pricing kernel or about the stochastic discount factor. I challenge that. Let me explain, right? So it goes back to, right, okay. Let me take a deep breath because it will take a while to explain this point. It's about the ontology. Ontology is a branch of philosophy that describes the fundamental structure of reality, right? What do I, what do I mean by that? So um, in Plato's features, Plato talks about carving nature at its joints. And here's an example, an ancient Chinese Taoist parable. 
a butcher is very once upon a time in an ancient Chinese kingdom, a butcher is extremely skillful in carving dead cow corpse. The king asked him, Hey, how can you be so good at doing that job? It takes you 15 minutes, whereas most of your peers will take four or five hours. What exactly are you doing that's different? The butcher answered that, easy. I respect the skeleton structure of the animal. I put the knife in, I found the natural opening, and then I just cut along the bone structure. So the resistance is only meats, it's only from meats, fats, and muscles, which barely put up any resistance at all. Whereas most of my peers, they cut across the bones. That, my friends, is my explanation, which I will explain much more carefully in my future writings. That's why, in my opinion, that's why consumption CAPM and the CAPM are having so much difficulty explaining anomalies, whereas what I call the investment CAPM has no difficulty, has no much difficulty at all. So, so it's ontology, right? So most of the time in asset pricing theory, we follow whatever our ancestors have been handed down, right? So uh, finance is young, so, you know, I've, so it's not that long ago I called them ancestors to show my respect. So, but the, but the, uh, but they were written in the the papers were written in the sixties, right? So, but if you stare at beyond the order mathematics, powers being demonstrated, at the end of the day you ask yourself, what are we doing? Because they assume all investors, right? I have no quarrels against Markowitz partial equilibrium problem. Yeah, so you manage your risk, and you do risk management, you maximize your expected return, right? But my problem is, the second you want to do equilibrium asset pricing, you have to make assumptions. The basic assumption is that there exists one representative investor, one marginal investor, who is doing all the pricing. That's exactly what the CAPM is telling us, right? CAPM says that, authors of the CAPM said, says that all investors home hold homogeneous beliefs and expectations. Consumption cap bank goes even further. Every everybody is all alike in terms of preference, beliefs, expectations, and even wealth distribution is irrelevant. So, so, but, so that, that's the investor-based ontology, right? In my opinion, that's actually wrong. The asset, our asset pricing theory described in all our standard textbooks is built on sand, shifting sand at that. In my opinion, the marginal agent that is doing all the pricing is actually managers. Okay, all right, let me use, I've been, in my recent like blog posts I've been using and writings I've been using Apple computer as an example. Imagine Tim Cook and his management team, right? Can you imagine all the shareholders of Apple computer shares? Elect one guy in charge, that marginal investor is sitting across the table from Tim Cook and Tony negotiating with Cook about, okay, this is your cost of equity uh, for, this, for, for the next year and go to your capital budgeting, financing decision and payout decision, executive compensation, right? And that's kind of absurd uh, because in actuality, in my opinion, what really happens at the ontological level is 
Cook is doing whatever he wants to do with the, with his management team. So he tries to maximize shareholder value, right? And this is our share price. If some shareholders won't like what we are doing and keep holding or even buy in, right? If you don't, please leave. <laughs> you can just sell your shares. Nobody's forcing you. It's a free country, right? So, and then in that case, so it is, it is the managers who's doing the pricing. So whatever I call the investment capital, I'm using the same equation, same mathematics as value maximization in our corporate finance theory. It's the same equation, just a little bit, uh, just, uh, just a little bit of um, uh, it's, uh, manipulation, it's um, derivation. It's exactly the same equation uh, in essence. So that's, in my opinion, that's a fundamental, fundamentally important point. It's about ontology. So we are, we have been getting, we have been getting ontology all wrong in asset pricing theory. That's why we are having so much difficulty, right? And Tom Freyer, we had recently started to follow each other on Twitter. So uh, he's, uh, he's, I think he was, uh, he's on the Manchester faculties. He's a philosopher of science on the Manchester in the UK. So he wrote a user guide to go to Critical Realism uh, Network website. Uh, he goes on and say, look, ontology oftentimes working scientists don't think about it at all, but it's hugely important. We need to take philosophy seriously because we all have implicit philosophies. Oftentimes they're pretty bad, right? And the Freire's point is that uh, oftentimes if you screw up ontology, if we don't have like, basic commonsensical understanding of our scientific object, object of our, our scientific study, right? You're gonna spend decades trying to find the things that don't even exist, like represent, like consumption betas, right? Because representative consumer doesn't exist. At the same time, Freyer says that you're gonna ignore all the explanatory variables that have been staring at you all along. That's the investment and the ROE factors, in my opinion, right? So empirically, right, Pharma French and many others, empirically oriented authors have been using firm characteristics for many, many, many years, right? But the asset pricing theorists that many of whom I grew up with and whose textbook writings I grew up reading they ignore the basic ontology. In my opinion, that's the fundamental failure of asset pricing theory. I criticized Pharma French before based on their pure empiricism, based on their dismissal of economic theory. Now I'm criticizing the mainstream asset pricing theory based on their screwed up ontology. That, that makes a lot of sense. That's really, that's really interesting. Um, I just have one more for me, and I wanted to ask you, this is whenever we have academics on the podcast, one of the things I like to ask at the end is sort of, since, since we're asset managers and we're doing this stuff in the real world, I sort of start to think about like how their research might translate into like a theoretical product, you know, the, the best parts of their research, how that might translate into managing money. And so I'm wondering if, if there was like, say, a theoretical ETF based on your Q factor model, I'm, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that might, how that might work, how that might select stocks, uh, how that might work in the real world. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess the construction of the Q factors uh, is pretty well known. Uh, it's, it's in our papers, I think, um, uh, right, that, that the investment factor and our E factor and our expected growth factor, uh, it's, uh, it's a bit more uh, complicated. Oh, I forgot to acknowledge the empirical specific. So our Q5 paper put the expected growth 
conceptually at the forefront of cross-sectional surprising, but we are completely open about alternative discussion, uh, specifications of expected growth. Uh, it's not uh, it's not that uh, right. We have one specification. That's it. In our paper, we actually went uh, into great details, reporting, hey, what this, this is what would happen if we use alternative uh, um, uh, models. So expected growth. Uh, we are open to alternative uh, modeling uh, econometric uh, models. What um, what are some of the new topics, new pieces of research you're working on that you're getting excited about? I mean, I think a lot of that actually, I think you expressed in um, you know what we've been discussing. But is there anything new beyond the Q factor that you're paying a lot of attention to or researching? Yeah. So 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 I've I've alluded a little bit already. So um, I'm uh, I'm my work has taken a turn towards philosophy and the history of a surprising. Um, so, um, right, the, I think a lot of the debates I'm having with uh, my colleagues, uh, some of them very, very senior on top of the world, I find that I feel that my debates with them are more are all philosophical in nature. The evidence, the evidence is there. The Q-factor model performs pretty well. It beats Right, head to head, the factor spanning test it beats the, the the six factor model, and not to say all kinds of uh, uh, um, consumption capital models, right? But the, the debate is really philosophically, conceptually, right? How do I pull everything together, and the, and the historically as well? So and then I think and, and this is how I see the big picture, right? So in my opinion, the investment capital body of work has the potential to really explain, depending on our definition of explanation, to really explain asset pricing anomalies. So the Q factor model is building on the Pharma French uh, factor model, and we are really acknowledging amply their influence on my work. But it's only the form of factor form. Our essence is quite different. Our essence is theoretical. Uh, we have a theoretical core. They don't. That's the biggest uh, difference. So about the, about the behavioral finance and historically, I've been critical of behavioral finance. So based based on the, um, the 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 stability of the causal structure that they have in mind, right? So and I but on the other hand, we do build on the especially on the empirical side, the behavioral finance literature big time, right? So you talked about um, uh, right. Uh, so earlier we talked about momentum, Jurgen Dittman, uh, Richard Sloan's accrual anomaly, and Jay Reader's uh, long-term underperformance follow, following equity issues uh, have been. You know their work have their their papers, classic papers have been truly uh, inspirational from our perspective. We've been trying to explain. Uh, the anomalies for a long time. So, but uh, um, but uh, but uh, so that's on the that's on the question side. But our explanation is quite a bit of different. So let me ask you the following question, right? Take a post earnings announcement drift since born the brown 1968 has been persisting for how many years now? More than 50 years now, half a century now. Do you really believe investment professionals like yourself? Highly trained, very experienced, so uh, sophisticated, very knowledgeable about the finance. You guys are making mistakes for half a century, and no one, no one catch you, 
right? So, and if you take the naive behavioralism literally, that's exactly what they would say, right? So, but in my opinion, it's not. It's part of the ROE factor. It's part of equilibrium expected return. Talking about the ontology again. Ontology is basically, right? So it's part of whatever firms are doing in value maximization and these are equilibrium, equilibrium factors that we see in the data. Right, so that's talking about, that talking about the pharma French empiricism, uh, behavior finance, that's also, right, consumption CAPM as well. So that's another um, rival research program. I see the investment CAPM uh, literature, so that uh, I'm a major contributor. It's a, it's a new research program uh, that uh, that's a rival with uh, the pharma French empirical body of work and the behavioral finance as well as the consumption capital. And uh, I, I should acknowledge the enormous amount of influence that uh, that consumption capital literature has on our body of work, right? So talk about micro foundation, first order condition, um, first principles, optimization based theories, uh, structure estimation, all these tools I learned from, you know, uh, from from consumption based asset pricing. But on the other hand, I do criticize that literature as saying they make, yeah, their foundation is not, it's not solid. It's built on sand. It's it's not common sense. A lot of what we are saying in the investment campaign is commonsensical, maybe enlightened common sense. To quote Roy Baskar's last solo author, the book, enlightened common sense. What we are doing, a lot of math we are using as well. It's all built on common sense. If you take the consumption campaign literally, it's not common sense. I would say it's common nonsensical. There's no representative agent that can negotiate with Tim Cook about what his cost of equity is gonna be in the next year or next five years. It doesn't work that way. It's Tim Cook who's deciding the cost of equity. We just have one last closing question for you. It's a standard question we like to ask all of our guests. And I have a feeling, and I might be wrong here, but I think philosophy might be weaved into this answer. So I'm kind of predicting something here, which I'm not good at predictions, but I'll guess. But the question is, and we're kind of coming a little bit out of the academic world here, so hopefully that's okay. But based on, I mean, the vast amount of research you've done, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to the average investor, what would that be? The three-factor model is debt. Welcome to the future. <laughs> should we have some confetti come down on the we screen? We should. If we, if we could figure out how to do that, we should. <laughs> Thank you, guys. That was fun. All right, Lou, thank you very much. If people want to learn more about you and your research, where can they go to find you? Uh, go to theinvestmentcapm.com. That's my research page. You can find lots of uh, blog posts, uh, lots of uh, YouTube uh, videos uh, with my presentations of my research articles. That's great. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, we'll also put a link to your Twitter handle in there. And uh, really appreciate all this. That was a super... Uh, super just intense and um, a lot of information there. And I think every single answer, you know, people are going to dig in and, and learn a lot. So we really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Jack. It's been an honor. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube, or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.